Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. So I'm particularly eager to tell you about some of the things I have discovered about the question that interests us here and also of critical importance, its implications for our mission as Catholics. I think we can all agree that our question, which in this talk anyway, is the meaning of the human person and why God made us male and female is really the question of our era. It would be an understatement of the first magnitude to point out that we are in the midst of a crisis in our culture. It seems to me that the thrust of the work we share is not only ordered toward saving souls, but also, and this is sort of my theme here, ordered toward saving Western civilization itself, assuming that can still be done. Now, since I really only have what amounts to a few minutes with you, at least for me, I like to have semester-long courses on this, but oh well. I plan to jump into our topic here without a lot of preliminaries. The subtitle of my talk, Complementarity as Mission, is a reference to a passage found originally in St. John Paul II's letter to women and significantly subsequently quoted in the compendium of the social doctrine of the church. It is this passage that will provide us with our starting place and give our reflections their proper context. I am sure it is well understood here already that as John Paul II tells us in many places, the complementarity that characterizes the nature of man and woman is what, quote, allows each person to experience interpersonal and reciprocal relationship as a gift, end quote. The theme of self-gift, in fact, as you all know, I'm sure, runs like a backbone throughout the late Holy Father's entire corpus. But what may not be so widely recognized is that in his letter to women, John Paul goes a bit further. He tells us that this complementarity, this relational uniduality, actually constitutes our mission. He states, to this unity of the two, God has entrusted not only the work of procreation and family life, but the creation of history itself. Here we learn that the unity that arises from the relationship of a man and a woman is found not only in the marital act and our natural capacity to create life. Men and women do not just make families together. We make history together. It is quite significant that his claim is also included in the compendium. It can only mean that the final end toward which our creation as two equal but differentiated human persons is ordered ultimately toward the realization of the church's entire social vision. Now the nature of the self-gift that characterizes the marital act is certainly at the foundations of human history. It is the primordial way in which we cooperate with the creative action of God, and it is unquestionably our point of entry into history. Indeed, as John Paul tells us in Love and Responsibility, through the marital act, we participate in the very transmission of existence itself. But it is this second dimension of complementarity that I would like to explore with you here. We need to understand much, much better how this relational uniduality is to inform our mission to create human history, because clearly we have not been doing a terribly good job of that. What I hope to persuade you of is that an understanding of his message in this regard may provide us with the leverage we seek as we try to snatch our culture literally from the jaws of death. In fact, I would suggest that not only is it perhaps the single most important question of our era, but that what happens next, and perhaps for generations to come, 
will be determined by our grasping in this time and place the answer to it. Every generation must rise to the challenge of their time, and it seems clear to me that this is uniquely ours, or really yours. Coincidentally, or perhaps more properly providentially, thanks to the work of St. John Paul II, we are only now poised to offer a proper response. Previous generations quite likely would have poo-pooed the question as settled. Most of those walking the streets of our great country would argue that it is irrelevant or worse, either misogynist or heterocentric or something. But I would say it is pretty obvious that we cannot afford to take this question of why God created us male and female for granted any longer. The stakes are too high. The struggle has, in fact, cosmic proportions. And in a sense, we are running out of time. Now, in a few minutes, we will jump into an exploration of complementarity itself, considering first what it means to say we are equal, and then what makes us different. Then we will turn our attention to something I hope will interest you. Though my work is grounded in St. John Paul II, of course, I do have some additional insights into the feminine genius, and I have taken the adventurous step of deriving an account of the masculine genius from Genesis as well. As Dr. What's his name again? Newton said last night, there really is one. And I hope that you'll like what I have to say about that. And then, unless I get the hook, we will also have to say something about what all this means for our mission. But I want to start not with philosophy or theology, not with a theoretical, but with some examples from the realm of lived human experience, and with a really brief look at what the science says about this topic. Doing so will give us a starting place in common experience and will illuminate concretely what we mean when we say that God is truly the author of all truth. Okay, some examples. My husband Andrew and I have a monthly faith meeting with a group of adult men and women held at an old church close to downtown St. Paul. We have a holy hour and then we go down to the basement for our meeting. The last time we were there, actually last fall, saints preserve us, there was a very large bat flying around the room when we entered. I mean, it was, it was big and it was swooping. And I kid you not, within two seconds, and with no discussion or forethought, all of the women were fighting for space under the one table in the room, <laughs> including my 13-year-old daughter, Maddie. We were laying as close to the floor as we could get as the bat swooped overhead trying to find a way out. Within the same two seconds, all of the men had found some kind of instrument with which to capture the bat. It was phenomenal. No discussion, no, what shall we do, or anything like that. It was like that, immediate. The women were on the floor and the men were looking around for tools. Within seconds, all of the men had found some kind of instrument with which to capture the bat. They found brooms, sticks, a dustpan, paper bags, a plastic garbage bag, a dust mop, anything. And of course, working together, they captured the bat. And of course, all the women breathed a sigh of relief, but then said, oh, please don't kill the poor thing. <laughs> Now, this does not mean that if there were no men there, we women, women couldn't have done something about it, but I believe I can say with some certainty that this particular group of women would have ceded the room to the bat. We would have called the maintenance man and retreated to the nearest coffee shop, no question about it. Now, here is another example, one that may be more personally satisfying for the women in the room. Now, I know I look young, <laughs> but some of you may be wondering how it is that my husband and I, whom I admit have both passed the halfway mark of life by some years, happen to have a 13-year-old at this point in our lives. It is a story of its own, and I don't have time to tell you the whole of it. 
It will have to suffice for me to say that we adopted her as a newborn. She was born exactly one week after my 50th birthday. You can do the math. Though it was hard, I quickly learned why people have their children young. To Andrew's surprise, mysteriously, I knew just what to do, and things were going pretty well. One night, about a week and a half after we brought her home, Andrew was so kind, he suggested I go take a nap. He would care for Maddie for a while. Early in the evening, I came out into the kitchen. Now, our kitchen has a tile floor and a smallish kind of butcher block island in the middle. There is Maddie lying on the butcher block island, wrapped in a blanket, sound asleep, Andrew nowhere to be found. Something like 10 minutes later, he comes in. <laughs> What's the big deal, he says. She can't roll over yet. Okay, so I suppose, that, so I know for sure the men in the audience are like, yeah, that's right, they can. <laughs> I know this, and the women are, what? Yeah. Whenever I tell this story, either privately or publicly, I get the same reaction. The women shudder and the men go, what is the big deal? <laughs> so these examples seem familiar. The feminists in our culture will tell you that it is all a matter of conditioning, not anything inherent to who we are as embodied persons, but here is what the science actually reveals. First, let's be very clear about one thing in particular. Researchers report that boys and girls exhibit male and female personality traits from the day they are born. It is on the record that there are scientists of both sexes who began their research secure in the conviction that they would demonstrate that these traits are a result of socialization. They had to change their tune when the data revealed it to be otherwise. There were scientists who became parents who began to raise their own children and determined to avoid any hint of the dreaded stereotyping, set it up completely differently. No pink blankets, no blue blankets, no ribbons, no tiny football jerseys, trucks for the girls, dollies for the boys, I guess, something like that. But we're in the end forced to admit that male newborns behave like boys and female newborns behave like girls right from the start. Guess what? Female babies are judged to be more sensitive, the males to be stronger. Here are just a few examples of what has been scientifically demonstrated. Baby girls look at faces, baby boys look at objects. A boy will look at the mobile above the crib, right? The little girl will look at your face. Three-day-old girls maintain eye contact with a silent adult twice as long as boys. They'll look even longer if the adult talks it makes no difference to the boys. <laughs> In contrast to one-day-old male babies, one-day-old baby girls, one-day-old, respond to sound of human distress. They can already distinguish an infant's cry from other noise. Boys cannot. Four-month-old girls recognize people they know from photographs. Boys cannot. When new toys are introduced into a nursery school, the boys drop what they are doing and go see. The little girls do the same when new children arrive. No matter what you give a boy to play with, he will make a trucker sword out of it. <laughs> I've read about boys who their moms said here, or lined up the Barbies, right, and the Barbies and Ken dolls and so on are like their armies, right? They're playing with the Barbies, but they make them into armies. Little girls will wrap almost anything in a blanket and carry it around like a baby. So I was telling my mom about this research and she said, why didn't they just give me a call? She had six kids, you know, some boys, some girls. She said it would have saved them a whole lot of money. Everybody knows this. Yeah, there's one researcher who calls people who still are convinced that this is all social conditioning. He refers to them as childless. These are people with no children, yeah. By the way, the same evidence shows up across cultures. Girls show more interest in babies. Boys are more interested in other things. So when we find ourselves in a situation, and this is why I began here, ladies and gentlemen, where people feel threatened by the suggestion that men and women are different, 
We can be confident that the church's teaching on complementarity is not some plot hatched by celibate white males intended to subvert women or return them to slavery or something. In what follows, we will see that scripture reveals what science is only just discovering, that man and woman are fundamentally equal, but constitute different and complementary ways of being in the world. I think what I say next will make clear how closely aligned these two accounts from separate disciplines, science and theology, seem to be. We are on the right track, for without question, God is the author of all truth. Now, let's turn our attention then to Genesis 1 and 2 and the meaning to be derived from those passages concerning the nature of woman in relation to man. It is, of course, common knowledge now that John Paul II grounds both his theology of the body and his account of complementarity in the first two chapters of Genesis. I have spent the several, past several years, um, and maybe, I don't know, close to 10 now, I keep at, forgetting to add it up again, investigating a claim he makes in the second and third general audience that Genesis 1 reveals the meaning of man in the objective sense, while Genesis 2 reveals the meaning of man in the concrete, subjective sense. And I have shown elsewhere that John Paul has that right. His claim can be demonstrated by looking at these passages through the lens of the metaphysical anthropology of Aquinas. And I would love to share with you the results of my entire investigation now that I have the microphone, but at some point they really would bring out the hook. So you'll have to get the book, or maybe this, see the movie when it comes out. That was a little joke. <laughs> so I've been pondering these two creations, two creation accounts for quite a while, looking into the meaning in the original language, considering other interpretations, praying about them, thinking about them sort of incessantly. And this has led me to some new insights into these texts that I think will interest you. Jesus instructed the Pharisees that we must return to the beginning to, the, to discover the meaning of marriage, and John Paul II's decision to do that, which is what really led to the theology of the body, were so breathtakingly apt, I have no words to explain it. I have come to see that they truly do contain divine instruction concerning our human nature. And I have discovered not only some new things about the feminine genius, as I said, I believe I have a very plausible account of the masculine genius as well. But let me say two things about that. First of all, uh, though John Paul seems to have left the masculine genius out of his own account, I just want to re uh, remind you that one scholar cannot do everything. And I am certain that I have his blessing and his permission to sort of move the ball down the field a bit for him. I've been praying to him since his death in 2005. I hope that was okay. And I have a sort of agreement with him. My project is, I would argue, a quite legitimate development of his. And secondly, I have learned, and this is perhaps most important, that to speak of the feminine genius without a concomitant and full recognition of the genius of man is to risk a distortion in our understanding of what it means to be human. It definitely risks what Sister Prudence Allen describes as gender polarity, where one gender is considered superior to the other. The feminine genius cannot be understood apart from the genius of man, and the emphasis that has been placed on it these past few years, while understandable and important, has at times seemed to tend toward its own brand of Catholic feminism, leaving men in some kind of theological limbo. In any case, St. John Paul tells us in Christi Fidelis Leici, that paragraph 50, that, quote, the condition that will assure the rightful presence of woman in the church and in society is a more penetrating and accurate consideration of the anthropological foundation for masculinity and femininity. And so this is what I have been working on. 
Now, I would never really question the Pope, and I will follow whatever direction he gives, but I actually don't think it's a good idea to pursue a theology of women. I am really not sure what that would mean anyway, to tell you the truth. My paper on the masculine genius was sent to the Vatican and has even now be, been published, so I am expecting a call from Pope Francis any day. If he calls, I will tell him that what we need is a theology of complementarity. And I guess I am hoping to suggest a direction on that here today. All right, Genesis 1 and 2. A few general comments about these two accounts as standalone texts are in order before we look at them together. First of all, it is important to note that though we have always thought of the main characters as Adam and Eve, only Eve is ever actually named, and even then, not until after the fall. They are referred to in the first account by the word Adam, a word that comes from Adama, or earth. And in the original language, Adam is reference to man in the collective sense, what the philosophers would now call man per se, or man as such. When at Genesis 1.27, God says, let us make man in our image, he does not mean the individual man, Adam, the husband of Eve, he means man as such. Human being is made in the image of God. Now when the sacred author states, male and female, he created them, what you need to realize is that the words in the original Hebrew, zakar, nekeva, are not nouns. They are adjectives, at least in this case. And they describe man as such. Zakar and Nekeva, masculinity and femininity, describe man as such. This does not mean that man per se has created both male and female. It, I think it helps if you use the words active and receptive. It means that man as such has the capacity for relationality built right into him. This is just a further specification of the received tradition that man is made in God's image and therefore is in his very nature built for relationship. The so what shows up when you consider that what this means is that both man and woman simply must be understood to be absolutely equal, both instantiations of the same substantial form equally endowed with intellect, will, and freedom. The first account then establishes that man and woman are equal. The second account is a little more complicated. Its significance hard to understand without some philosophical language. And I'm not gonna give you a lesson in that, but I'll do my best. Here is where we begin to see what differentiates them. Here we find a very different description of the creation of man and woman. At Genesis 2.22, Eve is made or built out of one of the man's ribs. And both God and the man are finally content that a proper helper has been found. Here the sacred author refers to man and woman as Ish and Isha. These are references to individual and concretely existing persons. Adam is fashioned from Adama. From the earth, Eve is made from Tzela, rib, a different, and a different word is used to describe her coming into being. She is built from Adam's rib. So just a little bit of philosophy here. I'm assuming for most of you it'll be okay. The philosophers would say now that in the second creation account, Designated matter and the principle of individuation have been introduced into the equation. Man and woman of the second creation account are the result of particular matter being introduced. The substantial form or soul that makes man what he is absolutely, illuminated in the first account, has now found individuation and differentiation via the designated matter that the form animates in the second. This is just a really short part, but you have to have the necessary backstory for me to go on. I hope that's okay. It's too, too late if it isn't, but okay. 
So to explain this fully would require technical language perhaps unfamiliar to many of you. It has to do with the commensuration of the soul to the body, substance and accidents, and whether they are inseparable, etc. We really can't go there. So you're just gonna have to um, believe me uh, when I report on what we can learn from the second account. So though matter is one of the things that differentiates me from man, this is where it cashes out. Since I am composed of both body and soul, and since my soul is meant for me, that would be the principle of commensuration, I am, in some essential way, a woman. My womanness does not reside in me merely in the matter of which I am made, it is who I am, as John Paul II uh, states, both physically and ontologically. To be a woman or to be a man is an essential property of me. It's very different from having red hair or blue eyes. It's a, it's a proper accident, okay? It's attributable to the composite. Men and women are equal composite creatures differentiated by the matter of which they are made. This is true of both of them. This is true of both of them. And thus we have from scripture proof that neither the male nor the female of the species can be considered normative for the species. Both men and women are composite creatures whose essence is to be either man or woman. What this means is that I do not have to act like a man to be considered human. And men don't have to act like women to be considered human. Are you, is that, does that sound good? That's what scripture says. We have two equally human but differentiated ways of being in the world. This is actually huge, but we'll have to go on. Okay, sorry if that was painful for some of you, probably was. Now that we have the necessary backstory, we are ready to look at what we can discover by considering the two accounts together. And the first point of interest begins in Genesis 1, and Pia touched on this this morning, where the sacred author seems to lay out a particular hierarchical order in which we see God clearly creates. God begins with the heaven and the earth, then light, he then divides the waters, then creates dry land, then vegetation, etc., etc. Monsters are in there, cattle and things that creep. Remember that? Okay. This all culminates in the crea creation of, of Adam, human nature created, active and receptive. This is clearly a hierarchy that is on its way up from lower life forms to higher. Now in the second account, the second account also indicates a sort of hierarchy. For there we read at 2.7 that a particular man, Ish, is fashioned from the dust of the earth. When at Genesis 2.18 God sees that man is alone, God forms every creature and brings them to the man to be named. Then God, realizing that none of the creatures correspond to man's own being, and that it is not good for him to be alone, decides it is necessary to make a fitting helper. As Dr. Waldstein spoke about, is there Conegdo, although your pronunciation is way better than mine. To make a fitting helper for him, then puts him into a deep sleep and forms the woman from the man's rib. Adam says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and as the Holy Father says in Eve, he recognizes another person, a being equal to himself, a someone, not a something, a someone he can love, to whom he can make of himself a gift, and who can reciprocate in kind. This seems fairly straightforward. But there are several additional and important points to glean from considering these two chapters together. First of all, it is only when we come to the making of woman that we see the final significance of the order introduced in the first account and brought to completion in the second. Man is made from earth, but woman is made from man. Though it has troubled feminists forever and is arguably at the beginning, 
the point of the historical misinterpretation of this passage, as uh, Mikhail was describing, the fact that woman is created second is not to make her subservient. Woman is not created second. She is created last and on the way up. She is the last creature to appear, a creature made not from earth, but from something that arguably already contains a greater actualization than dust or clay. Man is made from the earth, but woman is made from man. It is certainly plausible to suggest that she is made of finer stuff. And science can certainly tell us from just a few DNA cells whether or not what they are looking at is a man or a woman. Women are said to be more sensitive, no? But at least minimally we can say that because of the order suggested by reading the accounts together, woman can be seen as the pinnacle of creation, not as a creature whose place in that order is subservient or somehow less in stature than that of man. The proposition is reinforced when we consider that the Hebrew word usually translated as helper, as Dr. Waldstein said, is azer, actually does not mean servant or slave. When this word is used elsewhere in scripture, as we have already learned, it has the connotation of divine aid. Used here to express helper or partner is a word that indicates someone who is most definitely not a slave or even remotely subservient. There is the sense of an equal, a partner, help sent by God. Thus, woman is not built to be his servant. A different word would have been used if that were the intention, but someone who can help him to live. But we have to immediately note the full text. It is azer kenegdo, and as we saw already, kenegdo is a preposition that means in front of, in the sight of, before, in the spatial sense. And so we must recognize that while Eve is not below Adam in the order of creation, neither can we really say that she's above him. She stands in front of him. She's on a par with him, before him, meeting his gaze, as it were, and sharing in the responsibility for the preservation of all that precedes them. After all, at Genesis 1.27, both male and female are given the command to subdue the earth and fill it. The nature of woman in relation to man is finally clear. Woman and man are equal, equally possessed of intellect, will, and freedom, but they are also, in a sense, equal in their difference because while both are composites of body and soul, they are each distinguished by the matter of which they are made. Both are characterized um, by a capacity for action and receptivity while placed face to face in the order of creation, but as complements of each other. Both are equally responsible for filling the earth and subduing it, but somehow tasked with somewhat different missions, and as we shall see, a particular genius that belongs uniquely to them. There is more to be grasped from the text than this. And so we will consider now what we can discover about the nature of the masculine and feminine genius. I will begin by painting a somewhat broad picture and then, because it has been overlooked, return to a somewhat more detailed account of the masculine genius. And I begin with Adam, because he is first in the order of creation. Okay, this is the masculine and feminine genius part. First, it is notable that man is apparently in the garden alone with God for some period before the appearance of woman, something that has important implications for the place he occupies in the created order and the traditional understanding of man as the head of the household. But aside from this special relationship with the creator, it can be said that man's first contact with reality is of a horizon that otherwise contains only lower creatures, what we might call things, in the Latin, res. 
This is what leads God to conclude that man is incomplete and alone, and ultimately leads to the building of woman. Now man's orientation toward things is clearly a part of God's design. In fact, I think it points, provides a point of departure in scripture for the well-documented evidence that men seem more naturally oriented toward things than toward persons. In fact, man is tasked with naming all the things God brings him, including woman, by the way. It is in naming them that he takes dominion over them. Aquinas argues that man must have received a distinct preternatural gift in order to make it possible for him to name everything God brought him. In order to name things well and have dominion over them, man would have had to have gained some kind of direct knowledge of them and to possess a certain familiarity and sophistication with them. It can thus be said that man knows things in ways that woman simply does not. And it is here that we come to the core of what I propose is man's genius. He learns that he excels at discovering what things are, how they are to be distinguished from one another, and what they are for. This is his gift. I would argue that it is man's capacity to name things, to determine what can be predicated of something and what cannot, and an ability to arrive at a systematic way of judging the matter that constitutes the gift that men bring to the tasks of human living. It is man who at Genesis 2.15, and well before the fall, puts him at odds with creation, it is the man who is put in the garden to till it and keep it. Man is the only one who gets a specific job. This is his work. The genius of man is found in his capacity to know and to use the goods of the earth in the service of authentic human flourishing. But this orientation does not mean that man is somehow disordered. His first contact with reality includes the Lord God. He is, in the first instance, aware of his dependence upon his creator, and he is truly marked by that relationship forever after. It is within this context that he encounters the woman. Until the woman is brought to him, both to name and to love as he can love no other, he has no other like himself. Though this will change after the fall, he knows immediately that the woman is not a thing, not an object. She is a person. Without hesitation, he declares that she is flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. And while he can and does name her, he knows he cannot have dominion over her in the same way he has over everything else. She represents for him his highest good, the greatest gift that God has given him, and as a consequence, the value of all the rest of creation is abrogated. From and through his encounter with the woman, the Lord God reveals to him the nature of the reciprocal relationship of the gift of self. And he must realize as well that his own gift, that of caring for and using the goods of creation, is a gift to be exercised in service to her authentic good and the service of their mission to have dominion over all the earth. The contemporary dissatisfaction with the tendency of man to attend to things more than people completely overlooks the fact that the things of creation also have ontological status. They may be lower creatures, but they are creatures and as such, they are held in existence by God in much the same way that human persons are. The masculine inclination toward things and their uses is an aspect of the charism of men, and in many ways, it accounts for the building up of human civilization, has led, to, um, has led throughout history to human flourishing, 
and has made and still makes possible the preservation of families and of culture. The truth is that if it weren't for men, we would still be living in caves, afraid to come out. The proper response to the manifestation of the genius of men is not ridicule or resentment, but profound gratitude. Now to woman. In contrast to man and of special significance is the quite legitimate claim that since woman comes into existence after man, her first contact with reality is of a horizon that from the beginning includes him. That is, it includes persons. One can imagine Eve, a person also endowed with reason and free will, we've established that, who upon seeing Adam would recognize another like her, an equal, while the other creatures and things around her appear only on the periphery of her gaze. This exegetical insight seems to provide a starting place in scripture for the equally well-documented phenomenon that women seem more naturally oriented toward persons. In Moliere's Dignitatum, John Paul argues that the feminine genius is grounded in the fact that all women have the capacity to be mothers, and that this capacity, whether fulfilled in a physical or spiritual sense, orients her toward the other, toward persons. There is plenty of evidence to demonstrate this claim, and in every sense, Eve is certainly the mother of all mankind. But the point is, that in addition to her capacity to conceive and nurture human life, indeed prior to it, woman's place in the order of creation reveals that from the beginning, the horizon of all womankind includes persons, includes the other. This may explain why girls and women seem to know from the beginning that they are meant for relationship while it takes men a bit longer to look up and realize they are lonely for something they only just realized was missing, and to look for the one who can complete them. That was supposed to be kind of funny, but... It is? Oh, but you didn't laugh. I don't know how to take it. No, I mean, the girls are all waiting for the phone to ring, you know? The guys, they think that the young man has forgotten them. Maybe he has, but mostly that he's just playing baseball with his friends, right? So, yeah. The genius of woman is found here. While man's first experience of his own existence is of loneliness, woman's horizon is different right from the start. From the first moment of her own reality, woman sees herself in relation to the other. The fall will result in a disorder in this inclination. Eve's desire will now be for a relationship with man, even when she knows he is using her as an object. But the preceding analysis has shown that this capacity to include the other is not a lesser quality. It is not something that only unnecessarily complicates things, diverting us from the otherwise clear line of sight to achieving results. Nor does it compromise woman's fundamental intelligence or competence, her ability to get things done. Woman's genius, woman's genius, is to keep constantly before us the fact that the existence of living persons, whether in the womb or walking around outside of it, cannot be forgotten while we frantically engage in the tasks of human living. Woman is responsible for reminding us all that all human activity is to be ordered toward authentic human flourishing. Something must be said a little more explicitly now about the fall, because so far all of this is in reference to what John Paul II terms the state of original innocence. It is a description of what God meant things to be before the fall. 
And so it is necessary to make a few comments about the fall from innocence. And I would point out that the story of the fall does seem to indicate in a sort of backwards way that the interpretation of Genesis we have been considering has some merit. Because the account of the fall at Genesis 3 makes manifestly clear that they will suffer differently as a result of their sin. The woman will endure greater pain in childbirth. Nonetheless, her yearning will be for her husband, who will, in spite of her desire, lord it over her. The man will now struggle with creation. Those things he named as his own in Genesis 2 will now only yield their fruits with suffering and toil. The place both had occupied in the state of original innocence has now been turned upside down. In light of the previous analysis, this can only mean that instead of somehow occupying a place of honor, while nonetheless his equal, woman will now be dominated by the man. As for man, instead of occupying the place of secure and confident steward of God's creation, he will now have to fight with it. The effects of original sin will and clearly do manifest quite differently in men and women. It seems clear that original sin can be said to affect man in particular in his tendency toward a disordered relationship to things. Perhaps most obviously, his inclination to mistake persons for objects. His struggle is with creation itself. This can manifest for some men in a compulsion for work and acquisition that leads them to forget themselves and the true meaning of the created order and his responsibility as its steward. That does seem to comport with my own experience. I have a lot of trouble sometimes getting my husband to come in out of the garage where he's cleaning it for, I mean, the 10th time this month for dinner. Eve's punishment would lead to a distortion of her own natural gift, that of attending to the person and the capacity for relationship. She is told that her desire will be for her husband, even in light of the pain of childbirth. Here, husband should not be taken too literally. It is necessary to interpret this in light of our contemporary context. Certainly, it can be said that women now often manifest a disordered inclination in relationships. The confusion in relationships between men and women that has manifested over the last 50 years is well documented. And it is often the case, as I said, for many women that their desire for the other is for the other even when he treats her as an object, even when he dominates and uses her. And last, the age-old question of why the serpent approached Eve first with his temptation needs to be taken up anew. There have been only a few interpretations of this, mostly variations on the same theme, that Eve, being weaker and more vulnerable, was the easiest prey. But if I have shown that Eve is Adam's equal in that she is fully human and therefore endowed with a rational soul and the powers of intellect, will, and freedom, we are no longer able to hold to that position. Eve is most certainly innocent, but she is not a-rational. But she is at a disadvantage. She knows very little about the world of things, whereas Adam's relationship to the things of the garden is much more sophisticated. He had named them. He knew God much more intimately than did Eve. And so, yes, Eve was easy prey. But Eve was sent to Adam as a kind of divine aid, she is Adam's equal while somehow occupying pride of place in the created order. And so in approaching Eve, the serpent is executing a very clever strategy. His intent is to corrupt the entire hierarchy of creation, and so he begins, so to speak, at the top. He knows that if he can get to Eve, he will soon have Adam. 
As John Paul II tells us, Eve is first in the order of love. She was sent to safeguard Adam's heart. Eve was the greatest point of leverage because it was and still is her responsibility to turn toward the other, to keep man focused on the end toward which his work is ordered, the flourishing of human persons. And when woman loses her place, when she is corrupted, so is the family, the culture, the nation, indeed the world. At the same time, Adam also had a job to do. He was first in the order of creation. His horizon included a greater grasp of the created order and the way it came to be. He was also on intimate terms with the creator. His task is to be the first line of defense against the serpent, to protect Eve from the threats to her person, and he failed her. He failed to protect Eve at the moment in which she most needed his help. And is that not so even today? Though many of us will deny it, women are in very great need of protection now. They have lost their way in large measure, and so men have as well. In this regard, it is fitting to consider here the effect that Christ's redemptive act needs to have on these realities and to point with the Holy Father to Mary as the prototype of the feminine genius, the model that women are to follow in pursuing their own vocation. I have written elsewhere that for men, the fitting prototype type is most definitely Saint Joseph. The implications of this should be made explicit. But taking our clue from Saint John Paul II, what this means is that both the feminine genius and the masculine genius begins as a potency in nature, one that certainly can be actuated, observed, and spoken about on that level. But in truth, it is actually a supernatural reality that if we are to fully realize it, requires both man and woman to enter into the life of grace and be sustained by it if we are to arrive at that level that represents a more perfected state. It is one thing to laugh about the fact that I can remember where my husband left his glasses or his keys, or to feel a sense of superiority when it is clear that I seem better equipped to multitask. And by the way, some of this is because women have better peripheral vision. Did you know that? We have more rods and cones in our brain, or in our um, eyes. And so, have you ever wondered why it is that women can remember when someone says, where did I leave my shoes? Maddie will say that. Oh, they're downstairs underneath a pile of laundry and the da 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 da. It's because women can see better. A man literally doesn't see it. I've had this experience many times and this, recognizing this fact may have saved my marriage after Maddie came because my husband would literally not notice that she was about ready to fall off the cliff. Yeah, I wish I had time to tell you some of those stories. They're pretty funny. But when you realize that the fact is that women are built differently, it makes much more clear why we need to share our gifts with one another. I must be almost out of time. Um, okay, so here's the conclusion. Now what has all this to do with creating human history? Hopefully you've been able to make out some of that for yourself as we have gone along here, but here are some things that certainly must be said before we can consider our work done. And the first is for everyone here, all men and all women, to take seriously the fact that your nature as woman or as man includes a particular genius, a charism, a gift. And it is your job to develop that genius, to share it without fear or any hint of stinginess, and to allow yourself to be acted upon by grace until you realize it as a supernatural reality. Men, do not apologize for your fascination with things and their creative uses. It is your gift. Use it wisely to serve your family and the common good. And women, do not hold back when you know what is at stake are human lives and persons. 
A priest told me during our marriage preparation that the woman has the big picture and she is responsible for the life of the family. Not for doing the dishes, but for the life of the family. I mean, we might want to do the dishes too, but there's more to it than that. So you want to take that seriously. You are equipped with the same rational powers as men are, use them. It is a myth that men are objective and women are subjective. Men are object-oriented and women are person-oriented. They are no more objective than you are. They are just interested in different things. Your task, wherever you work, whether in the home or the public square, is to remind them that one cannot make of oneself a gift to a bottom line, a home project, or fantasy football. These things may be fascinating, but they cannot reciprocate. At the other end of every gift of self is another self, a person. Do not apologize for the fact that you can see things that they do not, and accept that they know things that you do not. Work together, ask questions, listen to each other in charity, and never forget that we are all under the sway of original sin, that it manifests constantly, perhaps differently in men and women. Resist getting sucked into the undertow of its logic. Finally, all of this takes place within the context of human history. Our everyday lives are made of it. We live in dangerous times. One by one, our liberties are being threatened as the onslaught of the sexual revolution morphs into a political campaign for the idea that the truth is what we say it is. We are told in Gaudi Mitzpez, all of human life, whether individual or collective, shows itself to be a dramatic struggle between good and evil, between light and darkness. Our mission involves a struggle with forces that cannot always be seen, nor can they be finally defeated, not until the second coming of Christ. And the first thing critical to anyone going into battle is knowledge of the enemy. If we have a mission, and the church tells us that we do, then we must face the fact that only a fool pursues a dangerous mission without having some sense of who the opposition is and what he is planning, and I think we all know who it is. As Monsignor Ronald Knox said, a man who taught the likes of C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, he liked to say, it is so stupid of modern civilization to have given up believing in the devil when he is the only explanation of it. Only the father of lies could be behind this situation, and he must be named because unless we name it, we might pretend with the rest of humanity that it isn't so, and make the mistake of thinking that we can solve this problem on our own if we just think hard about it. The mission we face will require us to struggle with forces that go beyond the day-to-day -day vicissitudes of the political situation in Washington or disappointing court decisions. It will require more from us than bearing down and working harder or simply sharpening our presentation skills. The situation requires saints, for only saints will find their strength in that which does not fail. This is my last thing, okay, okay, one more, okay. Okay, last, remember that the job of the lady is to transform the world. Dr. Newton mentioned this last night. The church teaches and I might suggest you think about including this in your own efforts to transmit her teaching. I'm not sure everybody got the memo. That the vocation of the laity is found in the context of the temporal order and in the midst of their earthly duties. That is where the laity receive their call from God. John Paul is very clear about this, stating that in fact, in their situation in the world, God manifests his plan and communicates to them their particular vocation to seek the kingdom of God by engaging in temporal affairs and by ordering them according to the plan of God. And thus we are able to say, and I say this to the young people in this room in particular, it is not the dream 
of a naive or youthful idealist to declare a wish to save the world. That is, in fact, our job. We do not work out our salvation by hanging around the rectory. We work it out in the midst of the temporal order by transforming it, by returning it to Christ. It is, in a sense, how we get to heaven. And, of course, that is our real mission. St. Augustine tells us that courage is the capacity to endure for the sake of what is loved. We are not called to be successful, only faithful. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.